0: Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name's Bran. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, double duty this morning, kind of a perfect storm event, so I needed to fill in and, and lead worship. Those of you who are with us, if you remember all the way back, way back in the day when we were just starting River City and me at the hotel, I used to lead a lot more often, and so you're like, ah, the memories, right? Others you're like, I don't know what's going on this morning. Like, what is what is happening? So, But anyway, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Excited um, so as well to wrap up our series this morning in the Gospel of John together. We've been working our way through John's account of Jesus' life and ministry for the last eight months or so. A couple weeks ago we got to the very end of the book but before we started our next series I wanted to come back to a couple of really good passages that we had to skip over uh, the first run through because we're trying to line up our, our uh, study of John with Easter. And so before we move on I want Wanted to kind of come back to a couple of those passages, put out like a little B-sides album release, a couple extra tracks that didn't make the first cut, and so uh, that's what we're doing this morning. And this is our actually our very last passage that we're going to take a look at in John this morning. And it's a passage, the one we're taking a look at this morning. It's actually a perfect transition to our next series. It's almost like I planned it that way, right? Almost, right? Anyways. Um, So uh, what we're going to be doing this summer is we're going to be spending our 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 whole summer and a little bit of the fall, I think, um, working our way through a bunch of different um, stories and passages that we find throughout the Old Testament. Some of them you'll probably be familiar with. Many of them you probably won't. Um, But regardless of whether you are familiar with them or not, you're in luck because uh, in our passage this morning in John 5, Jesus actually tells us the secret. He gives us the key to understanding all of the Old Testament all the passages and that's really good news because as we're going to see in our passage this morning no matter how familiar you are with the bible it's still really easy to miss the point people jesus is talking to are arguably the most uh the most dedicated bible scholars in all of history these are guys who would have likely had most if not all of the old testament committed to memory And yet even they had missed the point altogether, and the results in their lives and in their community were pretty disastrous. And so as we wrap up our study in John, as we head into a summer taking a look at God's Word in the Old Testament, uh, what we're going to see that Jesus teaching us this morning is that there are basically two ways to read the Bible. There are basically two ways to approach the Bible, either it's about you or it's about Him. It's either about you or it's about him, and only one of them is right. Only one of them actually leads to life. Spoiler alert, it's the second one. It's like the one where it's about him, right? And so I can't wait to show you that this morning uh, as we take a look at our last passage in John. But with that in mind, let's pray, and uh, we'll dive in this morning. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for our time together to sing to you this morning, to worship you uh, with song, and to and to worship you as we study your word and as we seek to keep uh, living in light of your truth. And so as we come together this morning to sit under your word, might you be at work shaping our hearts and lives through it. God, we need you to be causing the truth of your word, not just for us to agree with it. But we need, Jesus, you to be shaping our hearts so that we love the truth of your word. And so um, I don't have any power to make that happen, but you do. And so I pray that uh, pray that you would. I should pray too this morning. I feel like my voice is already getting a little like starting to lose her. And so I, God, I should pray that you'd help me uh, to speak this morning, just physically, as we do that this morning, and to sing. God, we, wanna, we want to worship you, Jesus. And so help us to do that, we pray. We're going to be this morning in uh, John chapter 5, verses 37 through 47. It begins this way. Again, uh, by the way, th- again, this is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. That's important context because it's kind of a feisty conversation. So he's, he's talking to people who think they're really sure they know what's going on, and he's helping them to see they don't yet. So it begins this way. The Father who sent me has testified concerning me. And you've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts I've come in my father's name and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in their own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, then you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say?" Now if you remember last week, uh, we studied a passage in John chapter 8, and we began by talking about how the, the uniqueness of that passage, it helps us to actually kind of bolster our confidence in the accuracy of the scriptures that we're reading. We talked about how no matter what you believe about what the Bible says, that you can have a really high degree of confidence that the words that you are reading, that they're an accurate representation of the author's original words that were written, right? But in our passage this morning, we're going to see how it's not just important that we trust the accuracy of the Bible we're reading, but that we approach it with the right perspective. See, at the heart of Jesus' words to the religious leaders this morning are basically, that there are basically two ways to read your Bible. And option number one is that you read it thinking that it's about you. We see this in verse 39. He says to the religious leaders, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. See, Jesus talking here to people, not, he's not talking to skeptics, he's not talking to cynics, he's not talking to doubters, he's talking to people who read their Bible every single day, who had huge chunks of it memorized, who, and yet who had still completely missed the point because they were reading it with the wrong perspective. Jesus says they were reading it with the scriptures from the perspective that it was ultimately about them. He says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because here's why you do it. Because you think that in them, right, in, in keeping the Scriptures, in, in doing what they say, that you have eternal life, that you earn eternal life. You see, the religious leader's approach to God's Word was that it was ultimately about them, about them figuring out what they needed to do and how they needed to live and what rules they needed to follow so that they could get eternal life. That's the thing they're after. D.A. Carson writes it this way: he says, their primary motivation for studying the Scriptures was to secure some final acceptance from God. And the honest truth is is that if we're we're honest with ourselves, they're not alone. It's really easy for us to read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and to think that the Bible is essentially kind of like it's like this guidebook for life, right? Like it's full of a bunch of rules that tell you what you should be doing or you shouldn't be doing if you want to please God, or, or it's just a collection of a bunch of, of really inspiring examples of people you should try to be like, or like bad examples that you should try really hard to avoid being like so that you don't get on bad, God's bad side. And, and don't hear me wrong, right? The Bible does have a lot of rules in it, especially the Old Testament, and they show us indeed how, God's, how life works best in God's world. And there are plenty of examples, both good and bad, of people that we can and should learn from. But the foundation of Jesus' words to the religious leaders here in John chapter 5 is the reality that the Bible is not primarily about us and what we should be doing. It's primarily about God and what he has done. See, Jesus says the purpose of the Bible isn't so you can figure out what you need to do so that you can get eternal life but it's rather to, the, to reveal the God who gives life in the first place. It's about showing us him. Jesus goes on in verse 39 to tell him this. The scriptures that they've studied so diligently, he says, they are the very scriptures that testify about him. And yet they refuse to come to him to have life. Jesus says, the scriptures that you have studied so diligently, this ones that you've memorized, they're about me. They're not about you, they're about me. They're showing you, they're meant to point you to me, to lead you towards me. They're meant to help you to see how you need a Savior that you cannot earn things on your own. They're they're not written to show you some path to eternal life. They're written so that you might know the one who gives life in the first place. See, the only way for God's word to be life-giving is if we read it looking for the giver of life, not the map to eternal life. And Jesus is saying that's the way we're supposed to read the Bible, that it's about him. It's not about us, it's about him. And that's option two, right? If option one is that it's about you, Option two is, it's about Him. See, the point of the entire Bible, its primary purpose and goal isn't to give us instructions about what we need to do and examples we need to follow, but rather is to reveal who God is to us and what He is like to us and to help us to see all that He has done and is doing in and through the person and the work of Jesus. That's the thing at the center. That's the biggie on the eye chart. If you've been with us as we studied John's gospel this past year, you'll you'll understand that that's the whole point John's been making. Throughout the entire thing, right? From the very beginning, he's been helping us to see that Jesus is God's perfect, ultimate self-revelation, and that it's only when you know Him and believe the truth about Him that you have the kind that you'll have the kind of life that God wants you to have now and forever. And yet in our pastors this morning, Jesus makes clear that it's not just the New Testament that is about Him, but it's all of the Scriptures. Right, besides the fact that the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus talks about the scriptures being about him. He says explicitly in verse 46, he says, Moses wrote about me. Moses is the guy who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Luke chapter 24 adds another story about how after his resurrection, Jesus meets some of his disciples and he explains to them, it says at the end of chapter 24, that he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets now, I don't know about you, but one, like, that sounds like the single most interesting Bible study in the history of the world. Like, I would totally wish there were some commentary notes about that, because that would be so interesting. But what that really means for us fundamentally, right, is that if we want to read the Old Testament with the right perspective, if we want to read it the way Jesus did, if we want to have his view of it as we read through it, then we have got to be asking the question of every passage, what might Jesus have pointed to in this passage and said this is about me. This points to me. It leads you to me. Now, growing up, if you would have asked me that question, I would have said like, "Well, I mean, like, there's like the prophecy stuff, right? Like, there's like Isaiah 53 and all the Messiah is going to suffer, and, and then there's like the Micah stuff about how like the prop the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but I, like that's about it, right? Like, I don't know, like I, I don't know how Jesus is in the rest of it, right?" Um, but Jesus says that it's not just prophecies about the Messiah that point to him in the Old Testament. He says he told the religious leaders that Moses wrote about him. Moses did that in the, in the law and in the accounts of Genesis and Exodus. He explained to the disciples and what was said in, about him in all of the scriptures. Now, just to be clear, it's not like Jesus' name is like hidden in invisible ink like on every page, right? Or it's like, it's not like you got to like skip every seventh letter, right? This is not like a Nicolas Cage, like a uh, national treasure. There's, a, there's like a map to some treasure on the back of the Declaration of Independence, right? Like that's, not, that's not what this is, okay? Instead, all of the stories, they're meant to point us to him, to leave us longing for him, to help us to see how we need a savior And I'm excited this summer to flesh that kind of stuff out for you in a bunch of different genres of the Old Testament, in a bunch of different stories, in a bunch of different little vignettes. But what I want to do this morning is just highlight for you eight ways that we get to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Eight ways the Old Testament foreshadows him, points to him. By the way, I'll just say this on the front end. I stole this from a lady named Nancy Guthrie. She's just like a brilliant Bible Bible teacher, humble, godly woman. I have learned so much from her over the years. And so uh, this is not my list. Uh, it's hers. I just stole it because I can read, and uh, she's great. And so I'd encourage her, like, find like she's great. So anyways, here, here's her list. She's kind of compiled this down from a bunch of different sources and kind of made her own. I just thought it was so helpful. She says, uh, she says it this way. She says, number one, first way to see Jesus in the Old Testament, look for a problem that only Christ can solve. There's, these are throughout the Old Testament, but you, you don't have to go very far to start finding one. You can get to Genesis 3 and you see the curse, right? The curse of that sin enters the world and it brings with it death. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this there's this common theme, who's going to come and overcome the curse? Who is going to defeat this undefeatable enemy that sin brought into the world? And obviously it's Jesus is the one who's going to, de- he's, he's the only one who can solve that kind of problem. right? We see all these other problems about our inability to keep the law and our separation from God because of our sin and all these problems that we see. The, like, the whole point of the Old Testament is to show you, you need someone who can rescue you from this and none of the people who try can do it. They leave us longing for Jesus. So a problem that only Christ can solve. Number two, a promise that only Christ can fulfill. Now, obviously that would include all the prophecy stuff about the Messiah, uh, but it's more than that. Just, Just one example I'll give you. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this promise that God keeps making to his people that he longs to and will one day dwell with them. That's at the very heart of this this storyline that runs throughout the Old Testament, that God wants to dwell with His people. And yet, what you see over and over and over again is God's people are sinful and wicked, and like a holy God cannot dwell with his people. And so there's this there's this thing that only that this promise that only Christ can meet. And if you remember in John chapter 2, we saw Jesus talking about himself as the true and better temple. That he's the one, he it's it's through him that heaven meets earth, that God dwells with his people and the temple was just this foreshadowing of what was really going to happen through the person and the work of jesus and so there's a promise that only christ can fulfill that god wants to and that he will dwell with his people and so that's one example another way number three look for a need that only christ can meet a need that only christ can meet You see this oftentimes throughout the Old Testament. People are always after life and fulfillment and a sense of purpose and identity. And over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, you just see these dead ends that people keep walking down. And then you get to John chapter 4 and Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And he says, I have the kind of water that you and everyone have been desperately thirsty for your whole lives. I'm living water. And when you drink of me, your thirst gets satisfied. See, it's a need that only he can meet. Number four you see Jesus in patterns or themes that come to resolution in him. One of the most, uh, just one example I'll give you is this this theme, this pattern of, of marriage. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God talked about himself as a bridegroom and his people as a bride, and yet they are endlessly unfaithful to him and endlessly rebellious against him. And yet there's this hope that we see throughout the Old Testament about how God's going to, he's going to have the kind of relationship with his people one day where he doesn't just have to, keep pulling them back out of sin but where they long to be with him and they're faithful to him in ways that he is faithful to them and you see how all that comes to fruition you see that in just this little picture in john chapter 2 if you remember we studied the very first miracle that jesus did in john's gospel was to turn water into wine at this wedding feast And where this husband had failed miserably to bring what was necessary to have the feast, we see Jesus coming and supplying all that is necessary so that an unfaithful people might become have like the joy of celebrating life and union with him. So he completes the themes. He completes the stories. Number five, look for a story that only comes to its conclusion through Jesus. Again, one example I'll give you. We'll see a bunch of these throughout the summer. But in the Old Testament, God's people were rescued out of slavery in Egypt and uses this language of Exodus. And over and over again in the New Testament, you see the New Testament writers about, uh, they write about how Jesus gives us this greater Exodus and about how... uh, the the Israelites' exodus out of slavery in Egypt was really just a foreshadowing of the greater exodus out of slavery to sin that Jesus himself would provide for his people. And so there's this image, there's this picture that's there in a story that comes to its ultimate conclusion in Jesus who gives us the greatest exodus of all. Number six: Look for a person who prefigures an aspect of who Christ will be or what He will do by analogy or contrast. This is in theological terms. This is the the language of typology. Uh, Tim Keller he kind of famously coined like this language about how Jesus is the true and better. He's the true and better Joseph who forgives an unforgivable offense. He's the true and better Moses who's our better mediator. Right? He mediates not only he's not only a better mediator, but he mediates a better covenant. He's the true and better Boaz, right? Who is Ruth's kinsman redeemer, who redeems and renews and restores. And yet Jesus does that even greater and even deeper. He's the true and better David. He's the ultimate king who always does what God's will is and who leads us into the kind of victory and the kind of freedom that only the true and better king can lead us into. And so all these people, all these stories in the good examples and the bad ones, they're meant to leave us longing for Jesus the true and better version of who they all are. Number seven, look for an event or a symbol that pictures an aspect of who Christ will be or what he will do. Just very quickly, we saw this over and over in John's gospel when Jesus kept using the feasts that were happening throughout the Israelite calendar and he kept showing people how all the feasts and the celebrations and the rituals that went along with them, how they were all ultimately pointing towards him and whether that was the feast of Passover or the feast of booths or all these different feasts, we saw Jesus keep saying over and over and over again I'm the thing that all these feasts have been pointing to they find their fulfillment they find their completion in me lastly number eight Look for a revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, These are, again, the big theological words that these are called Christophanies. In the Old Testament, Jesus makes a bunch of cameo appearances. John, in John's Gospel, he points out two specifically to us. In John 8, he tells us that that Jesus was the one who was in the burning bush that met Moses. Right? Jesus claims that he is the I am, the one who spoke to Moses. And John as well, in chapter 12, he, he recalls the situation in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of god a god who is holy 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 and jesus says in john chapter 12 isaiah saw me and spoke about my glory but it's not just those two examples. They're all over. We see in uh, commentators write how he wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. He commanded the armies of the Lord as the angel of the Lord in Joshua. He joined Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And you think back on those stories, maybe you're familiar with some of them, and you're like, I don't remember Jesus' name being in any of those stories. Like, What uh, what was going on there? I, did I miss it? Well, what happens is in all those stories, and again, we can't be too dogmatic about this, but the Old Testament tends to make a distinction between the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord. And usually when you see a passage identifying the angel of the Lord, that's talking about a divine like revelation of God himself. It, leaves us, it points us towards Jesus as him, a pre-incarnate version of him coming to in the midst of those situations so those are eight eight ways we're going to flesh those out a lot more i'm going to show you a bunch of different stories that that are examples of all that kind of stuff i am like legitimately really excited to do that because there's such it's just like so cool to read the old testament with with that kind of a lens and that kind of eyes. It, it transforms things but the reason why i point all that out and the reason why we're going to spend the whole summer doing that is because the two ways of reading the bible are not just different like they're not just different views. It's like well you could take one, or you could take the other, you can learn some things from both, right? Like that's that's not what it is, right? They are diametrically opposed. It's not like you get a, you take a little bit of each. It's one or the other. And because of that reality, they produce altogether different results in our lives. See, when you approach the Bible thinking that it's about you, invariably inevitably always you get some version of religion when i say religion i'm not talking about a specific religious system or a denomination or a certain church i'm talking about a way of thinking and relating to god that fundamentally believes that it's your actions and your attitudes and your behaviors that are the linchpin that that's the thing that god's really after and that you can earn his favor by just doing the right stuff, and avoiding the wrong stuff. See, religion, its goal is always to get something from God. And that's what Jesus is condemning the religious leaders for here. He says, you read the scriptures, not because you want to know God. You read them because you're trying to get something from him. You're after some gift you think he, wants to, he can give you. Religion sees God as a means to some greater end. And it always has this perspective that if I obey, then God will give me the thing I'm really after. It's motivated by fear that God doesn't love us or self-righteous pride that he's obligated to somehow. And because religion is ultimately always about you, it only has one of two outcomes. It either leads to pride right self-righteousness and pride because you arrogantly think you are living up to god's standards and you compare yourself to others and you think you're doing a great job in comparison to them or it leads to despair and despondency and just like apathy because you look at the standards you realize how you invariably fail to measure up and you're just like well i guess it's not worth trying then see unless we think that religious thinking is just something other people do like let me just be clear like religiosity that's the default mode of every human heart ever like it's the default mode for all of us how often are your motives for doing the right thing messed up how often are your motives for doing the right thing because you want the approval of other people? You want other people to think that you're a good person? You want people to respect you, or you just like want God like, I hope I get some, like I just really want some credit so like when I pray, then like I can be more confident that I get the thing I'm praying for. Or maybe when you read your Bible, do you do it because like you just I just feel better when I do? I just like need like a biblical motivational poster to like get me through the day, right? Like it's just like my pick me up, right? It's just like I don't do coffee, I do Jesus, but like it's just like this weird version, right? Or is it because you want to know the God that wants to know you? And the truth is, is that our motives are often messed up with that stuff. Or how often do we look at people around us and we see their sinful behaviors and we think like, at least I'm not that bad. I was talking last week, right? We, we look at the sin of others and we see people sin in some really spicy ways and then we're like, I'm more of like a medium to mild salsa sinner over here, right? Like, uh, Just like we dialed it back a few notches over here, right? And you don't say that out loud, but we think that kind of stuff. See, when you read the Bible thinking it's about you, we always tend towards religiosity, always. And it manifests in self-righteousness and pride or defeatism and shame. And the enemy is fine with either of those things because he wants you to miss the point and to miss the purpose and in so doing miss God altogether, just like the religious leaders did. But if you and I might adopt that second approach, Jesus's view, if we might read the Bible thinking it's about him, instead of religiosity, you get the gospel. And that's altogether different than religion. You see, religion sees God as a means to an end, but the gospel sees God as the end. He's the treasure, he's the prize, he's the thing to be enjoyed. It's him that we're after, it's him that we long for. In religion, it always says, if I obey, then God will love me. And yet the overwhelming, repeated proclamation of the gospel is that when you did not love God, when you did not obey him, in fact, when you couldn't, that's when God loved you. And it's out of, it's out of, responding to his unmerited grace, like that's the thing that fuels your motivation and the power that you have to live for him and to love him. You see, in the end, religion is always about you, but the gospel is actually about Jesus. It's about God, and that's good news. See, it's good news for us if we read the stories, seeing that they're ultimately about him. Because if the stories are about you, they can't actually be good news to you. See, and that's the, they'll just crush us under the weight of these standards that we can't live up to. And that's what Jesus is telling the religious leaders in verse 45. He says, Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hope is set. Again, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, including the law. And their hope, their, their hope for eternal life and for approval from God was based on their ability to keep the rules, to live up to the standards, to measure up. And Jesus says, Your hope is in the wrong place. You don't measure up. In fact, the whole point is that you can see you never can. And that you'll, have a, you'll see your need for a Savior. One who can meet the requirements that you could never meet. See, when you and I when to read the Bible from the perspective that it's about us, it just leaves us in the same situation as the religious leaders. This leaves us accused because we don't measure up right if the story of joseph is about you if it's just like this example of like somebody who forgave this incredible offense if it's just something you're supposed to imitate then it's an example that you and i never live up to right forgive and bless a family that hated you that sold you into slavery and that in the end still never apologized Like, I have enough trouble forgiving my wife when she leaves me without a toilet paper roll, right? And if I'm in that situation, I'm exacting punishment on the brothers, right? I'm like, those idiot brothers are going to get it. And the truth is, if you're in Joseph's situation, you do the same thing too. But if the story of Joseph is not about us, and it's instead, it's actually about God, it's meant to point us towards Jesus, then it can be good news, If it's really about Jesus who was unjustly rejected by his own family and betrayed for money, who like Joseph would forgive an unforgivable offense, and who like him would through his rejection bring about the blessing and the salvation of the very people who rejected him, then Joseph gets to be good news. Because you and I, we're not like Joseph, but we are like the brothers who don't deserve forgiveness, and yet who receive it generously. And if the story reveals that God relates to his family, not based on their performance, but based on his grace, then what happens is when you see Joseph's grace to his brothers, you see that just like a faint glimmer of Jesus' grace for you. And it wells up in you a worship of him, the true and better Joseph that the story was pointing to. Right, if the story of Samson, right? If that's just a story about you needing to avoid temptation so that God can use you, then none of us are ever getting used because all of us fall into temptation, right? It's just, that's, just, that's all it is. And yet, if instead Samson is really about, in all of his failing and all his rebellion and all his sin, if Samson, the point of that whole story is to show you the strength of a God who can use even the strongest of fools to save his people, then Samson gets to be good news to you. Because it means, right, that Jesus is the one who God, through his grace, God uses the strongest of sinners, the most rebellious of fools, for his good purposes including you and me right and if David and Goliath right, if that's just about like you facing your fears and trusting God to get around the obstacles in your life and kind of overcome the giants that you're facing then that story the only thing it does is it crushes you Because you and I, we do not have David's faith. Instead, we're like Saul and the Israelites who are cowering in fear and in doubt, like like crippled for months, not knowing what to do. And what happens when you throw all the stones that you have gathered and you miss with all of them, right? And the circumstances of your life actually defeat you. And, and when cancer wins and when, what happens when you can't find a job no matter how hard you are looking or if the depression that you are walking through is too overwhelming and you can't get out of bed. What happens when you don't have any stones left to throw? Well, then David's story just crushes you under the weight of an example you don't live up to. But if David's story is not an example of why we're supposed to fight, but instead is about the God who already fought for us, then it's good news for you. Because Jesus rescued us from the greatest enemies of Satan and sin and death. And he did it while we were all cowering in fear, unable to save ourselves. And his victory has become your victory, just like David's victory became the Israelites' victory. And so because of all he's done, you get to walk in life and freedom. See, if David's just about you, it crushes you. But if it's really about Jesus and it's just like it's just like another example of how amazing Jesus is he's the true and better david he's the better king he's the one we're after he's the thing david leaves us longing for when you read the bible understanding that it's all about him it's about god revealing himself to us right you always get the good news of the gospel and what that produces in you is always humble joy See, when the gospel is motivated by this unmerited, undeserved grace that's been abundantly, freely given, and when you see that story on all the pages, in every story, in all the examples, when you see it's all about him, what happens is it just makes you love Jesus more. And it makes you see how much you needed him in the first place. And it makes all that he's done for you even better than you knew it was before. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had studied the scriptures diligently, they had read it, they had memorized it, but they did it from the wrong perspective, and they missed the point altogether. Jesus tells them, his words to them are brutally revealing In verse 37 and 42, he says it this way, you have never heard God's voice or seen his form. His word doesn't dwell in you and his love is not in your hearts. He's saying that in missing him as the point, they didn't just have a wrong perspective. They missed God himself altogether. They didn't have the truth of God's word or the love of God himself in their hearts. They were still enemies of God and they were blind to that reality and they hated Jesus for telling it to them. And I want you to hear this this morning. See, Jesus said these things to the religious leaders not as like a zinger, right? He's not just like, gotcha, idiots, right? You're gonna get what you deserve. That's not what he's doing. See, Jesus is in love for them, helping them to see that they've missed the whole point and yet there's still time to turn. If you look in the book of Acts, what you see is that many of the same religious leaders who cheered for Jesus' death, they became followers of him and they gave their lives to him. If you're here this morning and you're realizing that you have been reading the Bible and relating to God through the lens of religion your whole life, and the good news of the passage is that there is still time to turn. See, gospel-centered reading of God's word, it always begins with repentance. It always begins there. With this reality that we've Either failed to or refused to come to Jesus for life. And like the religious leaders, the reason we do that is because we want to be in control. Right? Like following all the rules, like that seems dumb, right? But it feels like it feels like it makes sense because you can still be in control. And yeah, you gotta like bend the rules a bunch, and you gotta like really have a great eraser and fudge some things, but like it leaves you in control still. And yet the gospel says, like you're not king. Jesus is. He is the one true king and like we saw last week, instead of condemning us in our sin, instead of condemning us in our refusal to come to him or our failure to do so, the king himself becomes sin for us. And he dies the death our rebellion deserves so that even the most rebellious of sinners can come to him and find forgiveness and life. You see, it's him on every page. And it's his death in the place of rebellious sinners who refuse to and fail to come to him for life. That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. And reminding ourselves that his body and his blood were broken and shed so that you and I who do not deserve his grace might receive it. And that we might have new life and new power to live for him out of love for him that rule keeping and law keeping could never give you. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, if he is your Savior and your King, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. I dip the bread in the juice at one of the tables in the back on the left and on the right and do it as a reminder of all that he has done for you. And yet if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, if you're not sure if you want him to be your Savior, if you need one in the first place, or you're not sure if you want to submit to him as King, I just want you to know like you are welcome here. And like your your questions are welcome and your process is welcome and the uncertainties you have are welcome here. And we'd love to help you get to know Jesus. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion because God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, you are all I need. You are everything I need. You are my savior and my king and my hopes in you. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and like I said, we'd love to help you get to know him. But as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you are at, talk with God. I, like I said before, right, reading the Bible with a Christ-focused gospel lens, rather than a you-focused religious lens, it always begins with repentance. And for some of you, that looks like repenting of refusing to come to Jesus. For some of us, it looks like repenting of failing to do so. But for all of us, it looks like admitting to God that our tendency is to read his word, thinking that it's about us and not about him. And that's not a mistake that we make. It's something we need saving from because it's fundamentally rebellion against him. And when you see Jesus meeting you not just as your Savior for all the bad things that you've done, but as the Savior, you need for all the good things you do with messed up motives. then the gospel gets to be good news because it means that like you need it even more than you thought you did before. And so instead of just knowing that you need to see Jesus on all the pages, you'll start looking for him on every page because you know he's the one you need. Or else all the stories suck. They just crush you. And yet if he's the hero of all the stories, if they all leave you longing for him or pointing to what he'll do even better, then every page gets to be good news. And so as we study this summer, as we seek to read God's word, and especially the Old Testament with with Jesus at the center of it, I just want to encourage you, the thing you and I most need of all, It's not great resources. I'm going to give you a bunch of those to help you do it. The thing that we need most of all, though, is God's Spirit. See, the Pharisees, they had like 75 seminary degrees, and it didn't help them at all what they needed was the Spirit of God to enliven their hearts and to reveal the truth to them. And Jesus, like we saw a couple of weeks ago in John 14-16, through He says He sends the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts through faith in Him. And He leads us into the truth. And so the single most important thing that you can do when we come together to worship and study His Word and when you read it on your own is ask the Spirit of truth to show you the truth about Jesus. Ask him to help you to see how it's him on all the pages. And that's like the Holy Spirit's job. He loves doing that. Right? We talked about last week. He's the floodlight that shines light on Jesus. So not only does he love doing it, he's great at it. So ask him to help you do it. And then like assume all the passages are about Jesus. Ask the Spirit to show you and just like wait to like see how he'll amaze you with the goodness of Jesus in him. The thing we need most is him. That's true of me. That's true of you. That's true of all of us. And the good news is Jesus says he longs to show us the truth so that we might see all of the scriptures are about him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you and we're grateful, God, that we get to come to your word with the reality that it's not about us. God, When the Bible's about us, it just crushes us under the weight of all the rules and all the examples that that we never follow, that we don't meet up to. And yet when it's about you, when it's about you meeting us in our failures and in all of our inadequacies, when all the stories are about, not about examples that we have to follow, but they're about pointing us to who you are and all that you would do for us, Jesus, they get to be good news that give us life. And so God, we just want to come humbly and ask this morning and throughout our time in our series this summer, that like the good news of the gospel, that you'd help us to see that on every page and that in seeing you for who you are, Jesus, that we would have life that comes from you. We pray. Amen.